These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. When Hittite King Muatali II died in 1272 BCE, the weak reign of his son Uri Teshub and the power of his brother Hattishili III had nearly pulled the empire apart in civil war. But the skillful and diplomatic Hattushili managed to take power in a very unstable time and rule for some 30 years after, bringing a tremendous amount of stability and giving the Hittites a new lease on life. Having made peace with most of his neighbors and with a competent and energetic wife assisting in governance and religious matters, Hattushili likely went into the latter part of his reign feeling quite confident in the stability and peace of his kingdom. Still, two things remain as standing issues for the aging king to manage if he wants to secure his legacy before ascending to the godhood which awaits him after death. Raids and rebellion are beginning to rise up in the West, and though he's named a formal heir to the throne, there are a remarkably large number of candidates hanging around who all think they could do a better job than the guy that Hattushili selected. Now, the timeline here is very difficult to get a good sense of, so difficult, in fact, that my two main histories that I'm working off of put the key events here in completely opposite order. Uh, though I do think that both of these accountings are reasonable, and the story I'm going to tell here, uh, with a slightly different emphasis in certain places, really all still gets at the important factors in the narrative. The timeline is less important than what's happening, I think. Anyway, to my mind, the matter in Western Anatolia starts right as Hattushili takes the throne from his nephew. All treaties you'll recall, were primarily between the persons of the two rulers. And while vassal treaties often had clauses supposedly enforcing them on future generations, the general attitude was that the death of one treaty partner only obligated the other side to stay in the treaty if it remained advantageous. However, this was not a normal death of a ruler. In fact, Urhiteshib and his dynasty will remain active and independent in southern Anatolia until the fall of the Hittite Empire sweeps this little splinter kingdom along with it. Every Hittite vassal had to decide whether they were going to go along with the new regime, and while many did follow Hattushili, and many more were convinced by his performance in the Civil War, some of the South Anatolian peoples, the such as the tiny kingdoms of the Lucan people, had decided to assert their independence in all of the confusion. And for the most part, this actually worked out for them. Hattushili was first occupied with securing his power base and rebuilding Hattusha, which had at least partially been destroyed when his army had attacked that very city. It had been a good century since the capital had seen any major renovation projects under Shapililiuma during his victorious years. When Muatali moved the capital south to Tarhantasha, the old capital seems to have languished, and then whatever work Uri Teshub may have attempted in his brief time on the throne was quickly undone by the siege that ended his kingship. But Hattushili was desperate for legitimacy, and had the resources to devote to a big showy project, and so he made sure to rebuild the royal palace in grand style. 
Atop the city of Hattusha was a small plateau surrounded on three sides by difficult rises, a commanding and defensible site which had always been the home of the kings in, of the land of the Hatti, even before Hittite times. Nobles and wealthy families had long coveted spots for fortified compounds on the hill itself or on the main slope up the hill, but now Hattusili removed every domestic residence on that hill except for the royal palace itself, and terraced along the slopes to expand the building space available. This was palace and fortress, not only located on a rugged hilltop, but also the wall was rebuilt around the palace itself, though when I say around, only the southwestern quarter actually needed a wall because the terrain was so rugged on the other sides. And three magnificent gates were built into this wall. Within the palace was housed everything that was needed to run the empire. There were storage facilities and work areas for the many servants and slaves. There were shrines to the gods that would be tended every single day. There were dedicated spaces for the royal scribes to write, copy, and archive the volumes of written texts they produced every day. And there were barracks and training areas for the Golden Spears, the king's royal guard unit. And of course, the king and his family lived and held court here, at least when they were in town. They frequently were not in town. For those who go to visit the ruins of Hattusha in modern-day Turkey today, this is the structure you'll see when you go there. I posted some pics to give something of a sense of the place up on the show notes at oldeststories.net if you're interested. But it wasn't just buildings that Hattusili needed to shore up. It was also his network of support and vassals. And one of the most key individuals in securing Hattusili's throne would prove to be his nephew. Not the nephew he just deposed, Uri Teshub, but Uri Teshub's younger brother, Olmi Teshub. Now, Omi Teshub had been a promising young son of Muatali, but the decision had been made that his older brother would be chosen for succession. And so to keep him safely out of the capital, but still around and learning the tools of statecraft so that he could be useful in the future, he'd been sent to live with his uncle in Hakpis, back when Hattushili was busy ruling the northern chunk of the empire. The youth appears to have become exceedingly attached to his uncle and very much part of that branch of the family. So much that when Hattusili launched a civil war, a time when Olmi Teshub could conceivably have either backed his brother or declared his own royal prerogative, he instead stuck with Hattusili through thick and thin. When Olmi Teshub came out the other side, he turned out to have backed the winning horse, and Hattusili had every incentive to treat this potential claimant to the throne with a great deal of either caution or respect and gratitude. Also, Hattusili wanted this potential claimant to the throne, loyal or not, to be kept very far away from the capital. And at the same time as Hattusili was establishing himself and reaching out diplomatically to the other great powers, those rebellious Lucans were still rebelling. In fact, a number of states in southern and western Anatolia had decided to throw off the yoke of Hittite domination. And all of this either incited by or simply supported by the Ahiawans, the Mycenaean Greeks just across the Aegean Sea. 
In any case, the Lucans pushed eastward, conquering for themselves a good swath of Hittite territory, seemingly without any official response. Local rulers were left to handle the matter for themselves, and largely proved unable to do so. Even chunks of Kizawatna, the crucial link between Anatolia and Syria, was overrun. And so, it isn't clear if Olmi Teshub was sent to Tarhuntasha in order to handle this matter, or if he was sent there just to get him out of the capital, and he happened to be in the path of a, what turned out to be a pretty severe little disaster. Whatever the case, Olmi Teshub was named Viceroy of Tarhuntasha and given a number of royal privileges, making the former capital equal to Aleppo and Karchemish, each of which is still a viceroyalty held by a ruler from a branch of the ruling dynasty, and these cities are held above all other vassals. Olmi Teshub then took the name by which history would come to know him, King Karunta a Luwian name that would be more familiar to his subjects down in the south. And then, as the Lucans pushed ever eastward, Hattashili decided to try something that had sort of worked before, giving the newly renamed Karunta the same sort of authority that Hattashili himself had once enjoyed, that of a semi-autonomous kingdom, this time in the south, centered around Tarhuntasha and Kizawatna, for the purpose of keeping the Lucan rebels in check with the local resources of the south, leaving Hattushili free to pursue the major diplomacy that he would see as defining his legacy. And for the most part, it worked. Sort of. The empire was not completely overrun right away, and though much of the southlands were lost, Tarhantasha itself was not taken. It soon became apparent that this Lucan inrush was not just southern Anatolians asserting their desire for self-governance. No, for 20 years now, there had been a hand moving pieces in western Anatolia while the Hittites have been distracted elsewhere. That hand is the Ahiawans, the Mycenaean Greeks, who are experiencing their own little peak right as the Hittites are experiencing theirs. The Greeks aren't particularly taking advantage of Hittite weakness here. Rather, it seems they have been expanding across the Aegean for a while now, making allies, raiding enemies, and generally getting themselves involved in what history will come to later remember as the eastern side of the Greek world. But for now, it's important to note that no one in western Anatolia speaks Greek yet, though their increased contacts with Greek traders and raiders, as well as growing diplomatic ties with the Mycenaean kings, are causing a few of them to start to learn. As we look at the Anatolian situation more broadly, the Hittite Empire since Muatali's death has mostly lost the entire coastline to small independent kings backed by the Ahiawans. Of note, the once loyal kingdom of Willusa, whose capital will be remembered by history as the city of Troy, has been lost somewhere here. And given the archaeological evidence for a major war in that area in the mid-1200s, it's almost certain that whatever core of historical truth lies inside the Greek epic of the Trojan War occurred in this period, though history continues to be stubbornly silent on the actual course of whatever actions may have occurred. 
The end result of this is a substantial retreat of Hittite authority, just as Hattusili is establishing himself within the capital and among other nations. At some point, and it really isn't clear at all if this came in the beginning, middle, or end of Hattusili's 30-year reign, the Anatolian rebels, backed by the Greeks, pushed hard along the south, overwhelming whatever resistance Kurunta could manage from his southern vice-royalty in Tarhantasha. Hattusili was forced to intervene with the empire's full military force. In a sign of things to come, however, this campaign appears to have turned back the main attacking force, but the various loosely aligned kingdoms seem to have put less emphasis here on a single grand army, like the great states of the Near East had preferred for so long, and instead on more wide-based distributed tactics. While their advance could be blunted by the Hittite army, no single battle was able to shatter the entire force, requiring Hattusili to attack individual regions one at a time. Now, we shouldn't think of this as guerrilla warfare, but rather as decentralized warfare of the sort that the Cascans had engaged in for so many centuries now. This was in fact, the sort of fight that Hattusili had spent his entire life focused on, and was probably the best man alive to combat it, but note that he would also never achieved any sort of final victory against his Kaskin foes despite decades up in that front, and while he was able to take a good deal of Anatolia from the rebels and their Greek allies, he never did regain very much coastline and he'll die as the king of a smaller Hittite empire than he'd been born into. Though he did enough to claim a victory here, the incompleteness of the victory was clear for all to see. Large chunks of the Anatolian coast will never return to Hittite dominion, and it may have been at this point that the still-fugitive Urhiteshub set up his tiny rebel statelet, which would never quite manage to get conquered by the larger empire. In the midst of all this, an old nemesis, Piamaradu, pops up once again. You may remember him from episode 85 as the Anatolian adventurer who had sought refuge with the Mycenaean Greeks and used them and their allies as a staging ground to raid and plunder Hittite territory. Well, it seems he's been at it off and on for decades now, and may have been involved in the conquest of Willusa, which had occurred while history had its back turned. Piamaradu, based out of the West Anatolian kingdom of Milawanda, known in Greek times as Miletus, which was now one of the firmest Mycenaean allies in Western Anatolia, took some soldiers and pushed into the heart of Anatolia, conquering the Hulaya riverlands and even marching into the lower lands at the southern end of the Hattian heartland itself. It should be noted that this is the furthest eastward that any Greek power will manage to conquer until Alexander the Great, nearly a thousand years in the future. Still, the victory ultimately proves fleeting, as Hattusili is able to refocus his attention on the renegade Piamaradu and push his army back, though still proving unable to capture the slippery rogue. In the wake of this crisis, once the fighting had died down, Hattusili paid a visit to Tarhuntasha and his nephew Kurunta. Though Kurunta hadn't been quite as successful as the Hittites had hoped against this first outbreak of rebellion in the West, 
Apparently, it was recognized that he had done a fantastic job with what resources were available to him, and was still fighting the good fight, even with a reduced amount of territory. It seems that Corunta had been supplying his armies with one hand tied behind his back, so to speak. For Tarhantasha, when it had been the national capital under Muatali, had been obligated to provide a great deal of support to a large number of temples, so-called Shahan taxes owed to the gods. Since the capital was moved back to Hattusha, Tarhantasha had been obligated to continue paying some or perhaps all of these offerings, but with only the resources of the nearby region to fund them. And then, when Karunta took over as viceroy, Tarantasha was further burdened with the responsibility of defending southern Anatolia all by itself. And so, Hadjashili comes down and removes nearly all of the taxes and obligations that Karunta owes to the wider empire, leaving him with nothing but a nominal obligation to provide 200 troops when asked. This tax relief may have been a sop to a leader with a potential claim on the Hittite throne, but it may also have been a recognition that Tarhantasha simply needed more resources to be able to accomplish the task that Hattushili had given it. Or, of course, it may have been a clever way of both making Karunta happy and keeping the Anatolian rebel kings occupied. We don't really have a good sense of the timeline of what happens next, mostly because we don't have a good idea of when Hattushili's Western Anatolian campaign took place. But in the following years, as we move closer to Hattushili's death in 1237, there are signs of additional forward movement on this front. The Greek occupation of the city of Troy was ended, and the region around there was brought back under Hittite control. Elsewhere, the borders were slowly expanded, often by Hattushili taking advantage of the disagreements between the many tiny kings who were now turning their attention from trying to steal Hittite land to trying to get the best borders they could against their new neighbors. Along with small treaties with small kings, Hattushili extended the diplomatic campaign that characterized much of his kingship to the problems of the West sending letters even to the Ahiawan court in Greece. Most remarkable, though, is that he begins a campaign to finally rid the Hittite Empire of the Piamaradu menace once and for all. Hattushili marches westward slowly at the head of an army, and he may not have been feeling well as he marched out. His feet may have been swollen, or he may have taken one of his lingering slow illnesses, because the army marches slowly. Still, Hattushili tries both the pen and the sword, sending a messenger with a promise to treat fairly with Piamaradu if he'll come to the negotiating table. Piamaradu, for his part, is not interested in all these words, and tells the great king that unless Hattushili is looking to make Piamaradu an independent king over a large chunk of Hittite lands, then there was nothing for the two of them to discuss. And so Hattushili marched on learning that he and his army were camped at Ialanda, a city on the Aegean coastline. Upon arriving, he sent Piamaradu another letter, giving him another chance to have peace. But instead of a reply, Piamaradu sent his army, split into three parts to attack in what either sounds like a pincer move or a complex ambush. 
Still, the renegade adventurer was unable to overcome the royal Hittite army, and as soon as the battle started going against him, he fled back to his protectors in Milawanda, and from there to the Greek islands, apparently leaving his army to be crushed behind him. Still, in a remarkable admission of the weakness of the Hittite Empire, Hattusili stands at the border of Milawanda, a focal point of Mycenaean Greek power on Anatolia, and foregoes an assault, judging that an attack which would draw the wrath of all of Greece was more than the tired empire and its aging king could manage at this point. Instead, he sends a letter of remarkable humility, admitting that the Hittite Empire lacked the power to invade, and nearly begging the Mycenaean king to either hand over Piamaradu as a favor to the Hittite court, or just to have the renegade settle down somewhere in the Greek heartland and stop raiding Hittite vassals quite so often. The Greeks, for their part, either ignored this letter or replied with nothing of substance, for Piamaradu would continue to attack Hittite vassals in western Anatolia until his death, and the unresolved situation with the Ahiawans and loss of territory in the west would prove to be some of Hattusili's most enduring legacies for his successor. But who that successor would be was unclear for a very long time. Early in his reign, Hattusili had promoted his eldest son, Nerakaili, as crown prince. But after the debacle with Urhi Teshub, Nerakaili either died or was severely disgraced. Still, for those who think he was still alive, he may well have had a fair claim to the throne. Similarly, the deposed ex-king Urhi Teshub may still have lived and may still have been calling himself Great King among the tiny statelets of now largely independent western Anatolia. Karunta, down in Tarhantasha, looks quite a lot like Hattusili himself had during Muatali's death, a powerful, semi-independent ruler with a claim in his own right. Danuhepa, the former wife of Mershili, who had been deposed and then reinstated, likely also had borne children, who would have had their own claims. And Hattusili seems to have had a number of children scattered among a number of wives and concubines, many of those children who already had positions within the government that would have secured them at least some amount of power base if they'd tried to make the jump. Most importantly, Everyone was aware that Hattusili had taken the throne by strength of arms, and the question seems to have hung in the air whether this next transition would be one of inheritance or one of dominance. In order to resolve this, it was the powerful and intelligent queen, Putuhepa, now well matured into the matron of statecraft, who would end up dictating the future of the empire. Her son, Tudhalia, was selected some time after Nerakali's either death or disgrace, even while he was a child far too young to be a plausible heir in his own right. Still, Hattusili did everything he could to promote the very young boy, setting him along a path quite similar to the one Hattusili himself had followed in his life. As the son of two parents devoted to Ishtar, Tudhalia was himself assigned to the service of Ishtar of Samuha in very early childhood. This was 
clearly before all the Ishtars had been syncretized together. To make sure he had a power base no matter when his aging father passed away, he was also quickly given the governorship of the northern city of Hakpis and made chief priest of the holy city of Nerik, both of which were cities of great significance for Hattushili, and made the Gal Meshti, something of a cross between top general and head bodyguard. By age 12, he was sent off at the head of an army on one of the endless campaigns against the Cascans, and there his victory against a northern stronghold that had beaten back his father's army on a previous occasion was greatly celebrated. As a 12-year-old with such an impressive resume, we're forced to either conclude that he was a singular prodigy, or that he was only nominally in command while all the others did the heavy lifting on his behalf. And looking at his later career, it's safe to say that the singular prodigy option is pretty much ruled out. As Tudhalia became an adult, and his father grew ever weaker, he may have ruled for a time as co-king, either formally or informally, though the facts and extent of this are based on a few highly fragmentary items that are debated either way. Additionally, we know he was married to a Babylonian princess, likely a daughter of Qatar Enlil, as part of the treaty between Hattushili and the Babylonian king. Though Puttahepa would remain Tawanana and remain a powerful political force for Tidhalia's entire life, thus rendering Tidhalia's own wife nearly invisible in the historical record, though some do think that the Babylonian princess can still be seen in references to a royal lady who leads the faction opposed to Puttahepa, and whose bitter disputes will only serve to further the instability of an insecure king. In 1237, the funeral of the dead Hattushili III and the coronation of his son, Tudhalia IV, seems to have gone without a hitch. But after the ceremony had ended, and everyone stood back in the capital to await the letters of congratulation and fealty that were sure to flood in after such an occasion, the pile of letters was found to have been much smaller than previously anticipated as vassals throughout the empire decided to see what would happen next before pledging themselves to a monarch who might have a short shelf life. Even if the new king was able to hold the throne, the southern and western Anatolian vassals in particular had been distinctly unimpressed by the late Hattushili's performance. The possibility of war with Egypt, despite the so-called Eternal Treaty, was floating around, as was the almost certainty of a conflict with the expansionist Assyrians and the endless predations of the northern Cascans. And between all that, these western vassals may have been right to wonder if the new king would be able to spare the time and expense to protect them from the Greeks and the Greek-aligned neighbors. But before this could even be resolved, the vassal nation of Lalanda rose up in rebellion. This was, in a sense, expected. You can hardly have this much uncertainty about a new king without someone trying to test their might against him. But Lalanda was in the Lower Lands, the peaceful central region of Anatolia that had been unquestionably part of the empire for a very long time by this point. For a land so central to attempt to break away was shocking, and a sign that royal authority pretty much everywhere was incredibly weak. 
The uprising was put down swiftly enough that the feared wave of defections did not immediately materialize, but in a letter written to his mother Puttahepa, Tadhalia is clearly distressed by the event. And then, a short time later, there was a new threat even closer to home. One of his brothers or half-brothers, a fellow named Heshni, got a group of fairly high-ranking courtiers to back him in an assassination plot. The plot was well thought out enough that they had a backup contingency if the initial plan failed, and they had provisions to see Tudhalia poisoned secretly. Though the conspirators were caught and put on trial, the ultimate revelation of the full scope of the plot and the sheer number of conspirators left Tudhalia even more afraid than before, wary of attack from any direction. Soon after this, Tidhalia sent a set of instructions to a number of his subjects, which is quite candid about the situation the new king finds himself in. My son has many brothers, the king begins, referring to himself with the royal title, My Son. And there are many sons of his father. The land of Hatti is full of the royal line. In Hatti, the descendants of Shapililiuma, the descendants of Mershili, the descendants of Muatali, the descendants of Hattishili are so numerous. With regards to the kingship, you must acknowledge no person and protect only the grandson and great-grandson and the descendants of Tudhalia, me. And if at any time evil is done to me, my son, for my son has many brothers, and someone approaches another person and says, Oh, whoever we select for ourselves need not be a son of Tudhalia. Know that these words must not be. With regards to kingship, you must protect only my son and the descendants of my son. You must select no other person. You aren't exactly working from a position of strength when you're forced to promulgate a royal instruction text acknowledging the words of your enemy conspirators. In another royal message to an unnamed supporter, Tadhalia states very candidly that he fears a day when everyone abandons him. The royal palace empties out completely, his chariot driver jumps out of his chariot, and even the arrows in his quiver vanish disloyally, and demands that on that day, this unnamed ally to whom he is writing must still support the king. Which is, you know, ten of ten for sincerity here, but perhaps, you know, a one of ten for as far as inspiring loyalty goes. But we know that soon enough these anxieties and nightmares grow severe enough for Tudhalia to state some remarkably impolitic things. When Bentashina, the vassal ruler of Amaru, dies of natural causes pretty early in Tudhalia's reign, he's succeeded by his son Shaushgamoa, and this becomes the occasion for a renewal of the treaty between the two kings. In this otherwise quite standard treaty, Tudhalia relates the story of Masturi, ruler of the Seha Riverland. Masturi, it seems, had been installed by King Muatali and continued to rule under Urhiteshub, but then had joined Tidhalia's own father, Hattushili, during the usurpation. In relating this story, 
it becomes clear that Tudhalia sees himself in the role of Urhiteshub here, surrounded by a million potential Hattishilis, each more competent and powerful than the young king himself. Tudhalia vocally condemns the supposed disloyalty of Matsuri, demanding that Shaushkamua not emulate Mastery's example, essentially condemning both the vassal and Tudhalia's own father for the act of usurpation. This is troubling on multiple levels. On the surface, being so frightened of betrayal that he sticks a story about a rebellious vassal into an unrelated treaty shows that Tudhalia's orders of magnitude less secure in his throne than all the previous kings who simply said, remain faithful to me and my descendants, and left it at that. And of course, his example is perhaps remarkably poorly chosen, since Masturi never got anything but rewarded for having selected the correct side in the civil conflict, which surely is not something Tudhalia wants the ruler of the crucial borderland of Amaru to be thinking about. And more to the point, Tudhalia is undermining his own legitimacy here, since his own kingship rests upon the very act of usurpation he's so vigorously condemning. For this anecdote to make it into a diplomatic treaty with such an important vassal gives us a window into the mind of a young and immature king, terrified into disordered thought at the highest level. Though King Hattushili would like to have been remembered for his diplomatic victory with Egypt and the ultimate securing of the Syrian situation, his chief legacies for the Hittite Empire will be threefold. First, his failure to handle the Ahiawans and rebels in the West will snowball into an existential crisis for the land of Hatti. Second, his violent takeover of the throne will badly destabilize the kingdom right as it comes to face its greatest challenge. And third, his chosen heir Tudhalia is already proving to be far less confident and competent than he needs to be in the face of all of this. Though there are a few more names to come on the Hittite kings list, for the most part, Tidhalia will be the last major king of the Hittite Empire, and it'll be his decisions and failures over the next three decades which will seal the Empire's fate. So join us next time, as we see that he wasn't all bad, but the situation that he finds himself in will overwhelm him completely. Thank you for listening.